This morning, we have the pleasure as a church, as a congregation, in participating in the baptisms of uh, Theo and of Travis, uh, two wonderful little babies uh, from the Mots and the Walters. And so I felt it appropriate uh, that this morning we would have a sermon on baptism and on what we believe baptism to be and who it is for and how we ought to do it. Um, And I have just a few words for us, though, as we approach this topic before we go to spend time in God's word and before the sermon, uh, a few words that I thought would be necessary as we address this topic. Uh, Baptism is something that is meant to be a sign of the union of God's people, something that unites us together. But often in our own experiences, we know in our lives as Christians that baptism often becomes a huge source of division. We divide over questions about who we should baptize and how we should baptize and what does it mean and what does it do and how many times can someone need, somebody be baptized. And I think in the midst of all of those different divisions, there are a couple things that we need to keep in mind as Christians. The first is that true faithful, Bible-believing Christians who are trying to understand what God teaches us to do as the church can come to different conclusions on this topic. It's enough for me as a Christian to look back to four of my favorite pastors and theologians from church history, St. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, and Spurgeon, and to recognize that all four of those men held slightly different views on baptism to one degree or to another. And so, Uh, When we talk about baptism, and I'm talking, as I talk about it this morning and preach on it, uh, we do that with the recognition that there are people uh, here, and there are many of you that grew up in different traditions. I'll even be talking a little bit about my story, and we need to have grace with one another as we talk about things like baptism. And the second thing we need to keep in mind, though, is that baptism really is important. We think about things that divide, we can have the tendency to say, well, we'll just underemphasize those things and not talk about them because we don't want to divide people. But I don't think we should do that with things like baptism. Jesus gave baptism to his church as a gift in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And if Jesus included baptism in his one sentence statement about what it is the church ought to be doing in the world, then we should probably take it seriously and care about what the Bible has to say about baptism. So keeping in mind both the importance of baptism and the reality that Bible-believing Christians can disagree on this matter, the reason that we're going to be diving into baptism in this sermon is so that you as a church have an understanding about why it is we practice baptism the way that we do at Livingstone. I think it's important, even if at the end of this sermon you don't agree with all of my conclusions and the conclusions of our church and denomination on this matter, that at the very least you know why we do what we do, and that we baptize and we baptize infants, not just because we think babies are cute and infant baptisms are adorable, or because we believe that the church has always done this, although we do think it's adorable and we uh, do think that church history and tradition are important. The main reason that we baptize infants at Livingstone Church is because we believe the Bible tells us to do so, and that is what I want to show you this morning. So let's go and spend some time in God's word. 
Uh, we're going to be looking at multiple passages this morning. Usually in our sermons, we are walking through a single book and we dive into a single passage, but it's appropriate sometimes to take a bigger view at a, at a topic from a, a 30,000 foot biblical perspective. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning in our sermon. So let's stand together. You can grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14 for our reading from the Old Testament, and then we'll go to Acts 2. So Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. Let me get there as well. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 for our New Testament reading. Be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. And this comes right at the end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Again, Acts chapter 2, 37 through 41. <clears throat> Please again pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now, when they heard this, and that's the crowds at Pentecost, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you have spoken to us and you have revealed yourself to us, who you are, who we are. You've revealed to us how we ought to live and how we are to be saved. We know that your word is dear and precious, but it is also necessary for us and good for our souls. So teach us this morning from your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In my own Christian journey, my opinions have changed on the topic of baptism. I was raised in a Baptist church in southern Wisconsin, and I was a Baptist in my convictions until my senior year of college, when my convictions through a bunch of study began to shift more towards a Presbyterian and Reformed view of baptism. But my views didn't change overnight. Uh, I didn't just hear a biblical argument for infant baptism and say, there it is. That's what I believe now. It was actually almost a year before my, my views in a long time of study began to slowly shift. And what changed my mind ultimately was a book. And interestingly enough, that book was not a book about baptism. It was a book about God's covenants and the way that God interacts with his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The book was called Covenants Made Simple by John T. Rhodes. I know I've recommended it many times. It's a great book about how we should understand the overarching storyline of all of Scripture. Ultimately, what changed my mind was not getting a new perspective on the examples of baptism in the New Testament, but getting a new perspective on how God relates to people throughout the covenants in the whole Bible. Really, what I recognize is that you can't settle the question of baptism just by looking at the explicit examples of who was baptized in the New Testament. And that's because the examples of the New Testament only deal with first-generation believers, people who were not raised in the church because the church uh, in the New Testament church hadn't existed to that point, although we would say the Old Testament church did, and they hadn't been baptized, and they heard the gospel, they repented and believed and were baptized. And one thing that's necessary to remember is that all Christians agree that if someone isn't raised in the church, if they have yet to hear the gospel and respond, and they become a Christian, they convert, that that person as an adult should be baptized, receive the sign of baptism. The question really revolves around what do you do with second generation believers? And when we ask that question, we actually don't have any very explicit, specific examples in the New Testament. We do have household baptisms, which I'll talk about a little bit later, but we don't have any specific examples either of an infant being baptized or of someone being the child of a believer and being raised until an age when they could make a personal profession, making a profession of faith and being baptized. We have no examples clearly of what to do with that second generation. So to answer the question of baptism, we have to go beyond the examples of baptism in the New Testament and look back beyond even the New Testament itself to the Old Testament and ask about how God always relates to his people. And when we do that, we recognize that God always relates to his people through covenants. Throughout the Bible, when God enters into relationships with people, whether Adam, Noah, Abraham, uh, Moses, and Israel, David, and even us in the new covenant, he does so through covenants. 
And there's a lot that I could say about covenants. I love covenant theology. Uh, if you want more of a primer on it, you can go to a sermon I preached a couple months ago in Hebrews 9, where I laid out a lot more about covenants. But the big thing that I want you to see this morning in these covenants is that God gives promises to his people and then gives them a sign of those promises. This is something that's repeated over and over again through scripture. When God enters into a relationship, he makes promises to a specific people and then gives them signs. So promises, people, signs. If you can remember those three words, it'll help you a lot as I walk through Genesis 17 and Acts 2. One example when we're looking in scripture is God giving Noah the sign of the rainbow to accompany his promise after the flood. Another good example, I think, of this, although it doesn't pair exactly, is uh, marriage. Uh, Lexi and I were married seven years ago tomorrow on July 25th, uh, 2015, and a similar thing happened for us on that day as happens uh, in other covenants. We entered into a marriage covenant. We We made promises to one another in our vows, and we formed, by making those vows and promises, a new people a new family. There was a way that we left our previous families and we cleaved together and formed a new people through those promises. And then in the wedding ceremony, we gave each other rings. We gave them as signs of the promises that we had made. So if that example sticks in your head, again, promises, people, and then signs of those promises. The most important Old Testament covenant for understanding baptism is God's covenant with Abraham. Like in other covenants, God, again, gives promises, gives them to a very specific people, and then gives them a sign. So let's look at those three things. I'll try to look at these quickly. Promises, people, and sign with Abraham. Uh, And if you want, you can turn with me to Genesis 17. Uh, We'll be looking at Genesis 12 as well, uh, but I'll just briefly mention that. So Genesis 17, I've got to turn there as well. So when we look at God's covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis, we see that the heart of the promise that God gives to Abraham is the blessing of God extending to the nations. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to Abraham that all of the families of the earth will be blessed in him. And then he reiterates those promises in Genesis 15 and 17. And what I read in 17, we see that God promised to Abraham that He would make him into a great nation. Nations and kings would come from him. Again, that's the idea of God blessing the world through Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham, in many ways, is the launching off point of God's plan of redemption for the whole world. God was promising the gospel to Abraham. At least that's how Paul views it in Galatians 3. God was promising the gospel and the blessings that it would extend to the nations to Abraham. So that's the promise. Now look at the people. Notice the people of the covenant. When God establishes a relationship and enters into covenants throughout scripture, what he's doing is he's establishing a specific people to be his own. He's calling out people from the world to be his own. He's creating a covenant community. You hear us use that word at Livingstone a lot. That's what we're referring to. Those people of God that have been called out and set apart in the world. And look at verse 7. Who is this covenant community in the covenant with Abraham? It says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you 
and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. One really important thing that just about everybody is agreed with in the Christian world is that throughout the Old Testament, the people of God included not only adults, but also children. Throughout the Old Testament, it was always the case that God entered into covenants with believers and their children. And this is really important when we move to the New Testament and we look at Acts 2 shortly. So we see the promise, people, believers and your children, and then also notice that God gives a sign of that covenant, sign of those promises. In Genesis 17, 9 through 14, you'll see that God gives the sign of circumcision. And it's a sign that's given to all the male members of the covenant community, both to Abraham and to his children. Eight-day-old baby boys were circumcised. The sign was given to believers and to their children. It was given to those who were part of the covenant. Now, one common misconception, I think, with circumcision is the idea that it was primarily an outward, ethnic, and national sign of being a Jew and belonging to Israel. Now, circumcision certainly had that as an aspect of what it was. It had an outward element. It did mean that it put a visible difference between the people of God and the rest of the world. Circumcision was a sign of entrance into that community. But circumcision ultimately pointed beyond the outward to inward spiritual realities. And we see this throughout the Old Testament and even when the New Testament talks about circumcision. Deuteronomy 10 speaks about the need to circumcise the foreskin of your hearts, to not just be circumcised outwardly, but to have your old self taken away, to be renewed. And Paul makes the same argument in Romans chapter 2, 28 through 29. He argues that circumcision ultimately isn't outward and physical, but is a matter of the heart. It's the language of Paul. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Circumcision pointed, again, to removing your old sinful nature, to being purified. And then Paul even goes on in Romans 4 to say that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward reality. And yet it was given to baby boys who were only eight days old. God's covenant with Abraham illustrates for us something that was true, again, throughout the Old Covenant. God makes promises to his people, to believers and their children, and then God gives a sign of those promises to believers and their children. And I think once we have a picture of this being the way that God has worked throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, that we have a better footing to approach the New Testament. So in the rest of our time, I want to dive into the New Testament, Acts 2, and a few other passages. And I want to look at two things with you. First, who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? And then second, the blessings of baptism. The blessings of baptism. So first, let's look at who should be baptized. Now, here is my main argument about why we as a church baptize infants. So if you understand this, you get the entire thing. So I want to boil it down right to its very roots for you to make it as simple as you can, because we're going to be diving into some sticky uh, biblical interpretations. So here it is. In the old covenant, God made covenant promises 
to believers and their children. So both believers and their children receive the sign of the covenant. Good so far? That's what I just argued from Genesis 17. All right. Here's the second half. In the new covenant, God continues to make covenant promises to believers and their children. So both believers and their children should receive the sign of the covenant. Let me say that one more time so it really sinks in. In the old covenant, God made covenant promises to believers and their children. So both believers and their children receive the sign of the covenant. In the new covenant, God continues to make covenant promises to believers and their children. So both believers and their children should receive the sign of the covenant. And if you want it even more simple, children of believers are still in the covenant community. So they should receive the sign of being in the covenant community. You can say it in one sentence. Okay. So if you look at the historic arguments between Baptists and Presbyterians, I'm not even going to dive into all the other uh, different groups that debate about baptism. The argument really boils down to one question. One question. Are children of believers still members of the visible covenant community and recipients of the covenant promises? Are children a part of the church? And both sides recognize that once you've answered this question, you've answered the question about baptism. If you look at the Southern Baptist Convention statement of faith and compare their doctrine of the church, who is in the church, to our statement of faith, the Westminster Confession, you'll notice that that is the primary difference. For Baptists, their ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, is that the church consists only of baptized believers. The Westminster Confession and Presbyterians say the church consists of believers and their children. That is the issue. And when you solve that, you've solved everything else. And I think the first place to go here is to Acts chapter 2 and Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So you can turn with me there now. Acts chapter 2. All right, Pentecost in Acts 2 here is considered by many to be the birthplace of the New Testament church. So this is probably a good place to go to understand who is a part of the church, right? If this is the birthplace of the New Testament or New Covenant church. So as we look at at Pentecost, after the Spirit is poured out in Acts 2, Peter stands up and he preaches to the crowds at the end of his sermon. And when the crowds ask what they must do at the end of his sermon, what what must we do, brothers? Peter tells them in verse 38, this is really important. He says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're told how they ought to spiritually respond to this message with repentance, and assumed in there is also faith. And they're also given a visible sign, baptism. But notice, and this often gets overlooked at verse 39. Notice that Peter not only tells them repent and be baptized, he gives them a reason for this. He gives them a reason for repentance and baptism. Verse 39, he says, for, repent and be baptized, for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, does that language sound familiar to us? 
It should if we just read Genesis 17. Now imagine that you are a Jew on the day of Pentecost and you are hearing Peter's sermon here. And Peter uses this language that the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. This would bring to mind God's covenant relationships with his people in the Old Testament. This is why we spend time with Abraham. Peter is borrowing language right from the covenant with Abraham. There's a promise, it's given to specific people, and it's accompanied by a sign. So let's look at those three things in Acts 2. Promise, people, and the sign. What is the promise of Acts chapter 2 and verse 39? The promise is the Holy Spirit. The promise is the Holy Spirit. Context is really important here. Both Luke and Acts as books were written by the same man. They were both written by Luke. And at the end of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, and at the beginning of Acts, in both those chapters, Jesus mentions to his disciples the promise of the Father. He makes the promise of the Father. And both times it refers to the Holy Spirit. So flip back one page with me, Acts chapter 1. This really helps us understand baptism here, and you'll see why when I read these verses. Acts chapter 1, 4 and 5, right at the beginning, he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. This is uh, Jesus, right? But to wait for what? The promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. On just a quick side note, just stepping away from the argument for a second. This is why Presbyterians, one of the reasons why Presbyterians often baptize by pouring or sprinkling. This picture here in Acts 1 and 2, where Jesus promises baptism, and he promises baptism of the Holy Spirit, that baptism is not by being immersed into the Holy Spirit, but by the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the disciples. And so we're taking that imagery and that use of the word baptism. Sometimes it's argued that the Greek word baptism only ever means immersion. Uh, I think sometimes it can mean immersion, but I think in this case, it obviously doesn't mean immersion and can mean pouring. So that's the reason you'll see me today uh, pouring and kind of sprinkling water upon Theo uh, and upon Travis. So, okay, sidebar done, back in. Okay, argument, Acts 2, the promise, all right? The promise of the Father, Jesus has been talking about. Now the promise is for you, your children. The promise is the Holy Spirit. What I want you to see here is that this is the same promise that was made to Abraham. And you're probably going to think, okay, James, I thought you just told me that the promise to Abraham was that the nations would be blessed. And now you're telling me that the promise to Abraham was the promise of the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think when we look at the text, this makes sense. Look at verses 7 through 11 of Acts chapter 2 with me. When the Spirit is poured out, right? They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. What happens? They speak in many different languages and Jews and converts to Judaism from all over the known world were there and heard in their own tongues, in their own languages, the mighty works of God. The purpose of the sending of the Spirit to the church is to bring the the blessings of the gospel to the nations. The Great Commission is fulfilled through the work of the Holy Spirit in the people of God. And the blessings of the gospel are also worked in us by the Holy Spirit. Paul in Galatians 3, chapter, uh, verse 14 says, 
Notice again, connection between Abraham and spirit here. Paul says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What, according to Paul, is the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles, to the nations? It's receiving the promised spirit through faith. Okay, now just dove into the weeds. Let me zoom way back out here in case you're like starting to not follow what I'm saying here. Why is this important? Why is this important that the promise to Abraham and the promise in the new covenant go together? It's important because the promise that Peter declares to the church, again, is the same promise to Abraham. In the new covenant, we are recipients and heirs of the promise to Abraham. Paul argues this in Galatians 2 and 3. When we sing and teach our kids to sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. We're teaching our kids good theology. We are recipients of the promises that God made to Abraham. So remember, promise, people, and sign. Who are the people? We just look at the promise. I think Acts 2 is really clear on this. In Acts 2, at the birth of the new covenant church, who does Peter say that this promise is for? He says in verse 39, I believe, let me just double check here. Yeah, verse 39, he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And when we read that, we shouldn't first ask, how does an evangelical Christian in 2022 read those words? We should ask ourselves, how would Jews in Jerusalem for Pentecost have heard those words? How would they have heard the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off? They again would see that God is working with his people in the way that he has always worked with his people. This would make perfect sense to a Jew. God has always included believers and their children in the covenant. And God is just saying, I'm still doing that. The promise is still for you. The promise is still for your children. If kids were a part of the covenant community on the morning of Pentecost, are they still in the covenant community on the evening of Pentecost? I heard one of my professors, Ligon Duncan, make that argument. Are they still in the church? How would the Jews have understood it? If you had asked them on the evening of Pentecost, are your kids still in the covenant? How would they have responded based on Peter's words? Yes, of course. Why wouldn't they be? That's how God has always worked. So we've seen a promise made to Abraham again, and also to us, we see the people, believers and their children. And lastly, there's a sign that is given. The old covenant, the sign was circumcision, which we saw in the new covenant, it's baptism. And I think just seeing all of the, the use of the Abrahamic covenant in Acts 2 should lead us to think baptism is paralleled with circumcision. But we don't just have to guess. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, that baptism and circumcision are related. He says, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through, the, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is equating circumcision and baptism. He's equating their inner spiritual meanings. He's saying, you have received the inner spiritual meaning of circumcision by receiving the, the inner spiritual meaning of baptism. 
They go together. They both point to the, the circumcision of Christ and his death and those things being applied to us by the Spirit. You could boil down his argument in those two verses and that Paul is saying, you have been circumcised by being baptized. This would make sense. In the New Testament, there's this big debate over, do you need to be circumcised? And Paul's saying, if you haven't baptized, you have been. You don't need to be circumcised anymore. You have been circumcised. So again, in Paul's mind, baptism and circumcision essentially have the same meaning. And this explains why we can give the covenant sign of baptism to infants who haven't yet professed faith. Circumcision, the sign of righteousness received by faith, was given to eight-day-old boys, to infants. And if baptism truly replaces circumcision, then we should have no problem giving the sign of righteousness through faith, of union with Christ, to infants, just as circumcision had been. So now to zoom back out for us, okay? I know, again, diving back in, I want to zoom back out so we don't miss forest for the trees. What we have in the new covenant is the same as what Abraham had in the Abrahamic covenant, but just given to us in more fullness in Jesus. One good way to understand the way that the whole Bible flows together is that it's like a flower. Now, we, Lexi and I love gardening, right? And sometimes we'll plant plants from the seed, right? You lay the seed, and then a few days later or a week later, depending on the, the plant, right, you see it pop up through the ground, and it grows, and eventually it puts out leaves. Then you see the bud coming up, and then it blossoms fully into a flower. Now, is the flower a different plant than that young seedling that has just popped out of the ground? No. Now, is that flower more full and beautiful than the plant when it first popped out of the ground? Sure. Yes, it definitely is. What we have through the covenants in the Bible is like a plant that is growing. God's relationship with people unfolding, growing in its clarity, growing in its fullness, and it reaches its blossoming point in the coming of Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, and in his return. But what we have now in the flower is not different than what they had in the seed. It's the same plant, the same promise given to the same people, just with a new sign, but a sign that represents the same thing. So again, all the way back around, my simple argument. Again, if you get this, you get the whole thing. In the new covenant, God made covenant promises to believers and their children. So both believers and their children receive the sign of the covenant. In the new covenant, God continues to make covenant promises to who? To believers and to their children. So believers and their children should receive the sign of the covenant. Now, if that's true, if believers are still a part of the covenant community, then we should expect to see that throughout the New Testament. We should expect to see corroborating evidence pop up all over the place. And I would argue that we do. I want to just look at these really briefly. I'm just going to hit these off. If you want to write down the references when I mention them and dive back into them on your own because I don't have the time, uh, that's great. But we see evidence that children are still included in the covenant throughout the New Testament. The first is Jesus in Luke 18, 5 through 17. Luke 18, 5 through 17. And it also pops up in other gospels. We see Jesus welcoming little children. And in Luke, it makes it explicit that they were infants. Even infants, Jesus welcomed them. He said, let the children come to me. 
and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And Jesus isn't just saying the kingdom of God belongs to such who are like children. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God belongs to children like these ones. The kingdom of God still belongs to children. And Jesus has a heart for kids. How great is that? Jesus has a heart for kids. He loves kids. He loves infants and he welcomes them into his kingdom. That's first. A second. In the New Testament, we have four accounts of household baptisms. Acts 10 and 11 with Cornelius. We have two in Acts 14 with Lydia and the Philippian, Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And then we have one in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, interestingly, every single time in the New Testament that a household is present at a baptism, the entire household receives baptism. Now, that doesn't prove that there were infants in the household, although understanding households in the first century, it would have been crazy for there to have been four households like this that didn't have any children a part of them. But even if there weren't, I think this proves to us that God still works with families. God still works with households. One of the fundamental ways he works in the world is through believing families, right? And he still does that. And I think those baptisms remind us of that reality. Third, the new covenant community expands in the New Testament, not retracts. The new covenant community expands in the New Testament, not retracts. Women receive the sign of the covenant, like Lydia in Acts chapter 16. It was only men that received the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. Gentiles are brought in in a fuller way than they ever were before, right? God's covenant people grows and blossoms and expands in the New Testament. Now, how weird would it be if the, if the new covenant expanded in all of these ways, except one, God removed children from his covenant people and never told us that he did so. The covenant expands. It doesn't retract. God isn't removing people. He's adding people. Fourth, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that the children of at least one believing parent are called holy. The child of a believing parent, even just one believing parent, is called holy. And that doesn't mean they're saved, but it does mean that they're set apart. That there's something unique and special to God of a child who is the child of a believing parent. And again, I think that's consistent with this covenant way of understanding families and how God works with believers and their kids. Fifth, Paul addresses children in Ephesians chapter six and Colossians chapter three. And he addresses them in books, which are both, both addressed to the saints. Think about that. Paul addresses Colossians and Ephesians as books to the saints who are in Ephesus, the saints who are in Colossae. And then he includes directions to the saints, to children. Again, including them in the covenant community, including them in those who are saints, who are holy, set apart from the world, right? They're still in the church. And then lastly, this is an argument from silence, but it's pretty convincing, at least to me, is that we see no controversy about the status of children in the New Testament. Again, with all of the debates and controversies in the New Testament over things like circumcision, how much do new Christians who are Gentiles need to obey uh, the old, old covenant things like, you know, circumcision and stuff? How interesting would it be that we would have an entire group of people removed from the covenant that you went to all these Jewish Christians and said, your kids aren't in the covenant. They shouldn't receive the sign anymore. 
And that caused no stir or controversy among Jewish believers. Uh, I know, again, again, that's an argument for silence, but I think, again, it shows that their assumption is that God is still working the way that he has always worked. So who should be baptized? Since the covenant includes believers and the children, the sign is for believers and their children. If you have questions about that, there's a great book here by Jason Holopoulos. I have a lot of other resources. I couldn't dive into all the little details of it, but I hope at least you get a picture to know we're not just baptizing Travis and Theo because we think it's cute. We think that God works with his people in the way that God always has, that he loves our children, that God cares about them and includes them in his people. And so the last thing I want to talk about is the blessings of that, that there are blessings of belonging to this covenant community. And Jason, in this book, he mentions blessings to the children, blessings to the parents, and blessings to the congregation. I think those are great categories. So I'm going to borrow those from Jason Holopoulos just to close off and to, in a way, to introduce what we're about to do here with baptisms. I don't want you to come away from the sermon just with a bunch of like thick exegetical and theological stuff in your head, right? I don't want you to just have information. I really want you to see the beauty of baptism when it's practiced in this covenant way to believers and their children. So again, I want to talk about the blessings. So first, there are blessings to the child. There are blessings to Travis and Theo this morning in their baptism. But before I talk about the blessings, let me tell you what the blessing isn't, okay? Before I tell you what it is. What isn't the blessing of baptism? And this would set us apart as a church from some other Christian denominations as well. We believe that the, bapti- that the blessing of baptism isn't that the child in that moment is necessarily regenerated or that it guarantees their salvation. We do not believe that the blessing is that it guarantees the salvation of this child. And I think when we remember what baptism is as a covenant sign, that that clears that all up for us. When we remember it pairs with circumcision, where people in the Old Testament guaranteed salvation by their circumcision. Clearly not, if you've read your Old Testaments. You could be circumcised and have the outward sign and not have the inward reality. And we think the same is true for baptism. You can receive the sign and not have true spiritual baptism, although we hope that our children will and trust in God. So after we say what baptism isn't, what is, the, what is the blessing of baptism? The biggest blessing of baptism to the children is that God makes promises to them. Baptism isn't primarily about what we declare to God. Baptism is about what God declares to us. God is the one who is working in baptism. God is the one who is making promises to Travis and to Theo today. God is giving them a sign that his promise is for them, that they're truly a part of the covenant community, that they belong here, right? They belong in Living Stone Church. They're not second-class citizens. They're not outsiders until they get old enough to make a profession of faith. They are people who are truly a part of this community. Just like Jesus welcomed the children to himself because he loves them, let us welcome children as well. The babies and kids of our church belong here in worship. This is why we love having kids in our worship. They belong here in worship in the presence of Jesus just as much as we as adults do. And kids, know that. I want you to know, not just because I tell you right now, but because the way we treat you. If you're a child and you're in this church, we believe that you belong here and that you matter to God. 
We want to see you grow to know him and to love him. That's a blessing for you. It means that kids receive the blessings of worship and prayer and God's word, discipline, instruction of their family and their church. And it's our hope that as kids are raised in this environment, hearing these promises, that they will take hold of those promises personally by faith. And it's simply a fact that one of the most common ways that God works to bring people to faith is through being raised in a Christian family and in a Christian church. What we most desire of the kids in our church is that they would truly not know a day apart from the love and presence of our father. Baptism is a blessing to our kids. But it's also a blessing to parents. Baptism of your child, now Logan and Becca, Chris, Hannah, I'm speaking to you guys particularly right now and to everybody. Baptism of your child is a blessing to you because it's a reminder that your hope for their salvation is not in how perfect a parent you're going to be. Chris and Hannah, you have a lot of experience being parents, and Becca, Logan, you guys are brand new, right? But either way, Your hope for the the salvation of your child is not that you're going to do everything right. Your hope is in a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. You're reminded in baptism that salvation is God's work. It is something that he does to us even when we are helpless like little babies and little children. And that's why we take the second vow that the parents are going to take today. Do you claim God's covenant promises in your child's behalf, and do look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation as you do for your own. Again, our confidence and our faith is that God would, would deliver and that God would redeem our children and draw them to himself. But even alongside these blessings, there's also responsibilities for the parents, right? Parents, you have a duty to raise your children to know the Lord. You have a duty to pray for them and to pray with them to teach them our doctrine, to teach them God's word, to teach them the promises of the gospel, to discipline them, and to set before them a godly example. I'm convinced that your your children will not just learn from you because you teach them their catechism and read them their Bible, but also because they see you living out your faith. I grew up loving hiking and fishing and music. Why? Because my parents loved hiking, fishing, and music. And they brought me into the joy and love they had for those things. And it was contagious. It poured off on me. How much should that be the case in Christian families? That you don't just raise your kids. You don't just teach them the truth. But that they look to you and they see that you love God. That you love God's people. And that they then desire to love God and love his people in the way that you do. So be an example for them. And the rest of us as a congregation, too, our job is to assist the parents in these things, to help them disciple and teach kids, to treat kids in a way that they know they belong here with us, and also to set an example. Think about this. We gather together on Sunday mornings, right, and we worship God, and we should worship because our God is watching, because our God is present but we should also worship like a kid is watching. Worship on a Sunday morning with the assumption that there is a kid in this sanctuary who has their eyes fixed on you and sees how you listen to God's word. They see how you worship God with affection and love for God. They see the way that you interact and love one another. When we worship, 
It's an example for our children, which is, again, one of the reasons we want them here with us. They learn and they see. So, again, worship like a kid is watching. Since I'm already addressing the congregation, here's my last thing, blessing to the congregation. Even in the baptism of a baby, there is a blessing to all of you who witness it this morning. In our first year of marriage, for me and Lexi, we were kind of at the time in our life where we were attending a bunch of weddings, and Lexi was a wedding photographer, so we were at weddings through the summers constantly, every other week sometimes. Sometimes we were at weddings three, three Saturdays out of the month, and it was pretty insane. But weddings took on a different significance for me after my own wedding. And some of the newlyweds in the church, I wonder if you've experienced that, if you've been to a wedding recently. You go to a wedding and you're reminded of your own wedding. And when you see them taking their vows, you're reminded of your own vows. And hopefully your love for your husband or your wife is stirred up in you while you are there at that wedding. Baptisms function in a similar way. If you are baptized, watching the baptism of somebody else is a reminder to you. A reminder that God made those exact same promises to me in my baptism. That I need to take hold of those promises myself by faith. That I need to trust in God and his work in the Holy Spirit renewing me, drawing me to Jesus Christ. We can look to baptism and we can remember and be blessed, have our faith stirred up and encouraged. And and we can be reminded that we need to live in light of our baptism. As we grow as disciples, there's a blessing for us when we see a baptism done. So even as I baptize Travis and Theo in just a moment, take this time to remember your own baptism and to remember the great blessing of the covenant that God has bestowed upon you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the blessing of baptism. Not just that we do it because you told us to, even though that is a great reason to obey you, but also to know that in obedience to you, there is blessing. In obedience to your command to baptize, there is blessing for us, blessing for the children who are here, blessing for the adults and believers who are here, blessing for all of us as a congregation. So we pray that you would sink these words deep into our heart, And also that you would open our eyes now that we've heard your word to also see your word, see the sign of your promises to us in this baptism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Baptism, the sign of the new covenant, was initiated and instituted for the church by Jesus himself. As I mentioned in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We baptize this morning in obedience to the command of our Jesus of our Lord Jesus. And we see here in in Acts 2 and Genesis 14, where we've been looking that baptism is a sign and a seal of God's covenant promises that he makes to believers and their children. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. The promises of the covenant of grace, union with Christ, forgiveness of sins by his blood for all who believe, new life in the spirit and the hope of eternal life. These promises are signified for us in baptism represented so we can see, and they're sealed to confirm God's covenant promises to us. Now, Walters and Mott, you guys can come on forward. All right, we'll have the Mott's right here, and then Walters on the far side, and then we'll flip in just a moment. <laughs> Matt, you guys have done this once or twice, have you not? <laughs> Wonderful. So there are questions that I'm going to be asking to the parents, vows that they are going to take, and also a question, if you look in your worship guide on the back page, there's a question that I'm going to be asking to you as the congregation so I'll ask you guys these questions first. You can respond, we do, if indeed you do agree with them. And then again, as I ask the congregation, you can also respond, we do. Chris and Hannah, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises in his behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, again, a question for the congregation to answer an affirmative. You can actually raise your right hand and respond, we do. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Now keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Chris, Hannah, I know we've done this before. But look out. I know life can be crazy sometimes. It's a challenge to raise your children to know the Lord, but you're not doing this on your own. Look at these hands. These people are here for you to support you and encourage you and to love your children. It's a great blessing. All right, you take Travis here. Hey, little boy, how you doing? Big boy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Let me pray for us and for Travis. Father, we pray that you would send your blessing upon this baptism and upon this little boy. We pray that he would not know a day apart from your love. That is, he is raised in a Christian home and is raised as a part of this church. That is, he hears the good news of the gospel and the promises that you make, that he would embrace them by faith. 
We pray this in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Travis Benjamin Mott, covenant child, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Just keep this on. I have questions for you guys. You guys want to flop around with the Walters? Thank you. Same questions for you guys. Becca and Logan, do you acknowledge your child's need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises in his behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with and for him and that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Congregation, to you again, and raise your hands again here as you affirm this question. Do you, as a congregation, undertake responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Again, keep your hands up. And you guys now, look around you. I know you guys are new to parenting. It can be overwhelming. These people are here for you. They love you. They love Theo, and they're here to assist you to see that he comes to know the Lord. It's a great blessing. Take Theodore here. Here, Let me go around this way. Hey, Theo, how are you doing? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would send your blessing upon this baptism of little Theo, that he truly would not know a day apart from your loving and fatherly presence. He would be raised by Becca and Logan to know the truths of your word and of the gospel, and that in hearing them by the work of your spirit, he would respond to the gospel with faith and repentance and find the hope of the gospel that is given to him and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, you lost this little buddy. You want it? There. Maybe. All right. Theodore Leroy Walters, covenant child. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bill, if you'd like to pray for us. Yes. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, for the baptism of Travis and Theo. We do pray for them that you would help them to grow up healthy and free from many of the dangers of this life. We pray especially that you would draw them to yourself. We pray that that day would come when they put their faith and trust in Christ as, as individuals. We know the parents have made some serious promises, as well as the congregation, we've made some serious promises. Help us to keep those words that we said, that we might assist the parents in ways that are possible for us to do.
We commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.